Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This is episode 67 with Seth Tankis. We're talking about playwriting and gender and awesomeness, which is a brief synopsis of the episode. Uh, you're going to want to see Seth's work around Seattle. You're going to see Eat Cake at NX Theater, directed by Catherine Blake-Smith. That runs April 26th through May 11th. And in the time between the interview being recorded and me posting it today, Copious Love announced that Seth's play, The Untitled Play About Art School, which sounds very interesting, is going to be produced in the fall of 2016. So lots of opportunities to see Seth's work around town. Before we get to the interview, I want to say thank you to everyone who's been donating in support of the podcast. If you're able to throw a couple of bucks our way, you can visit theatricalmustang.podbean.com. You can make a monthly gift or a one-time gift. Uh, every dollar helps us. We're committed to keeping this podcast free for all, uh, so please consider making a donation. I want to stick in a plug here for The 39 Steps, uh, which is a play I'm in that opens... On Friday, which is February 12th, and runs through the 27th, get more info at wiccaonline.com. I think that's it, folks. Please enjoy episode 67 with Seth Tankus. I'm sitting down with playwright Seth Tankis here in the podcast studio. Uh, it's not really a studio, but we're going to have a lot of fun. I want to start off this interview talking about the importance of pronouns. Go. <laughs> Great. You're the expert. I'm go. the expert. Okay, so um, uh, I go by they, them pronouns um, as opposed to something like he or she or some people use here, some people have um, Z, Zer, um, some people use their names for a pronoun. Um, I I think for me the importance of a pronoun specifically is that it, it allows when a person gets your pronoun right, or what really when people have their own pronouns, it allows people to self-determine their gender, which is, I think, a thing that is really important to do. And that's kind of like... A thing that has become more mainstream conscious recently is gender self-determination um, in that I think for me though I was assigned male at birth I have I do not identify with masculinity or maleness I might look a certain way I have a certain be I have a beard but you know facial hair doesn't have a gender nor like body hair does not have a gender right so um, I think for me and the importance of my pronoun being they, them, is that it encompasses much more of my identity than just he, him would. Like I, like I have, am often misgendered as he, him. And I, and to a, to a certain degree, I under, I understand. And I know that because I move through the world in a certain way and the, this, those pronouns are not as, um, widely known in the mainstream I, 
uh, or mainstream ear, then it's just going to take people a little while to adjust because I mean, people have been socialized to believe that gender is a binary since they were born. And then especially, I think, in a lot of gay male circles where everything is so penis-centric, is so male, and specifically penis as male-centric. Because, of course, there's women with um, all sorts of parts. But um, how um, I walk into a room, uh, or I walk into, like, I don't know, like a gay bar, or, like, I was socialized primarily amongst gay bears. So, like, fat, for those of you who don't know at home, fat, chubby gay men... um, who have beards and listen to Kylie Minogue, I guess. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, mean, that's I don't the, know why it's so funny, but it is. Right, right. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, am be, I, I, am, I move through the world as a boy, depending on how you look at it. So, when people call me he, of course, it, I, I don't identify with that, but, like, I understand that sometimes it's going to take a little while for people to get used to it. And it's not like a snobby thing. It's not like a social justice, like elitism thing that it's just a kind of thing where it's like, you know, like people are, we are all on learning things. It would be, am I right in saying it would be if, if someone mispronounced your name, it would, it's, it's a sim in the same vein of it needs Similar. to be correct. Like I want, I want it to be correct. I want it to be how I identify. Yeah. And I think, yes. I'm, um, I'm trying to, for, for listeners who might not have, as much familiarity with it. I'm trying yeah. to give them a little bit of a touching in point. Maybe that's not quite accurate. No, but, but I, I hear what you're saying, though. Where it's sort of like... Um, I Like, if a person will he me, then I'll be... It, it, then I'll I decide whether or not I'm going to correct them. What goes into that decision? If I think they're going to listen or not. Um, right. And that... It usually is a revolving around context, like, like when I and like when I go out to a gay bar, it's usually because I want to cruise, and I am kind of like, uh, I'm just gonna put my boy drag on. So I'm just going to assume, unless they know me, that they're not gonna, that they're not gonna, that they're not gonna they me. Um, sometimes I, when I go into a space, I'm like, okay, like I. Uh, I would prefer to be they'd more often than not, but I understand that sometimes in certain contexts it's just not going to happen. Um, in in queer spaces, I just I it usually happens more where I'm they'd because they just they either know me or they understand or they understand or people just don't try to assume a person's gender no matter how they present. Um, like a person could like just like me like a person could look a certain way but they would go by a completely different pronoun i know a person who presents masculine and goes by she um or people who present feminine and go by he or they just don't want to change anything about their body at all and i'm also in a i like i'm also in a process of quote transition since i'm genderqueer non-binary um non-binary is a more um i identify with non-binary trans feminine um so outside of the gender binary on the feminine side I like to think of both genders instead of neither. Um, gender full instead of genderless. Love that. Yeah. Um, but gender queer has been a term that has been widely used for a long time. Um, like that's been since forever ago. Um, but how do you define for someone who might be hearing that phrase for the first time? I think a lot of our listeners are pretty savvy and pretty conscious. But right. If someone hears the word gender queer for the first time. 
How would you define it for them? Genderqueer is neither male nor female, or both male and female, um, or whatever you want it to be. Uh, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and um, I'm like, I'm still in a process of transition, and I'm still in a process of figuring out my identity and where I, uh, where I fit, and it's going to be a you know a lifelong process and um i mean like now i dress more like now i wear eyeliner relatively regularly now i kind of wear fe- more feminine clothing than i used to i didn't for a while i didn't want to change anything about my appearance for a while now i'm kind of like oh maybe i want to like change things up a little bit um i um it's just you know it's a process and i'm figuring out as time goes on and i'm uh, I'm just figuring it out. As we all are. As I we hope, all are. I hope we all get to... I hope we all give ourselves permission to explore the range of gender and how... I know earlier in my 20s, I was very much about dresses and I'm wearing a dress now, but <clears throat> now I'm like, I'm being cast in male roles and I'm like... I want suits now. I want to get rid of the dresses and now I want suits and, but that's okay. And we have our personal evolution with gender and I think that's so exciting and I'm so excited to see all the different forms of gender expression and gender performance and different vocabulary and how it is coming more into the mainstream and how people who once might be like, I just don't, I don't get it or I'm impatient or I just will never get it now they sort of have to hold their feet to the fire and be like right. okay now I, okay now I'm gonna really try I'm, I'm it's confusing to me to say they there about a singular person but now it's in Webster's dictionary you can point them to that and right? apparently it is the word of the year it is the word of the year apparently it's the word of the year from I don't know what source but my friend Jason shared it on my uh, timeline and, and and he's like Look, <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> like vindication. <laughs> not that I like, not that I need like Time Magazine to like tell everybody, but it like it, it's it's like now, now that Time Magazine does it, or like Time Out, or like Buzzfeed or something. Now that they do it, like it's like, well, you know, you gotta you gotta listen to it. <laughs> but it's also been interesting as a playwright um, working with actors outside of the binary because I, 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 and I apologize, this is presumptuous. I do not know of many other non-binary femme playwrights in Seattle. I know a couple actors and I know femme playwrights and I know like, um, genderqueer actors and I know of more genderqueer, uh, playwrights outside of Seattle. Um, like, um, I went to Lambda Literary, uh, the Queer Writers Residency, last year, and I met right. a few of them there. Um, but I, I understand this. Like this might, I don't. I don't, I'm not trying to say I'm like special or anything, but I don't know of any other trans feminine playwrights in Seattle. And please correct me if I'm wrong. If you're audience. listening to this and you identify that way, let us know. Please, please, <laughs> please let me network with you. Oh my god. <laughs> how does that? How does that? affect your work and affect how you write gender in your plays. I think, and it's been, in, uh, um, it's been interesting because I, I can't sort of quote in like the most non, 
I don't have another word for it right now, but I sort of came out as trans feminine just at the beginning of last year. I've sort of had my like one year gender weird anniversary um, coming up in the next few months. Do we get to say congratulations about that? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, I don't, I, then I'm gonna like, say it. I'm like, I'm like, because it's still like. I, 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 I'm proud of myself, right. but, um, I think the, uh, so I've really only worked like my show eat cake has a genderqueer role in it who, um, and, and they're specifically written to pass as a cisgender woman. Um, and I have a show that I'm working on right now. That's about being the, about being a genderqueer femme person in a room full of bears um, in a room full of, like, masculine gay men, specifically, like, out in the middle of the woods, um, with, like, l- dance breaks to <laughs> gay disco and that kind of thing. Um, and I think I'm still kind of figuring it out right now. A lot of this is still sort of in the early stages of figuring it out, but, um, at this point I'm like, how I write gender is, to answer your question, because I tend to talk in circles. Me too. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, how I write gender, it, I like, I, my play, a, oh my god, what, sorry, my phone started ringing, um, my play about, eat, eat cake is not about gender, I haven't, the, I'm only writing one play that's sort of about gender right now, so I would say that all of my characters could be played by transgender people, could be played by cisgender people, could be played by gender nonconforming people who identify a certain way. Um, I think that's... Like, um, in Eat Cake, we have an actress who um, is sort of uh, gender... who who is gender nonconforming of sorts. She's sort of, like, doing her own thing with it, and she really wanted to play a boy. And we were like, let's, let's do it. So we're going to, so she's playing a boy. Um, and it really, it, it works. Like when you, when you saw her read for the script, I'm like, okay, this like completely fucking works. And it kind of goes to show how it's not, how our constructs of gender are kind of limiting. Right. And that it's not just about gender bending because the, because the thing about gender bending is that it kind of just talks about it only talks about the binary, it seems, and that there's not room for like a character that isn't either or is both or can kind of because people have an have a small idea of what transgender people look like. Um, like they look like Janet Mock, or they look like Laverne Cox, or they look like Caitlyn Jenner, or they. I'm sorry I said those, I said Caitlyn Jenner with those two other amazing women. But, um, (laughs) um, I think there's a, there's a thing where I'm hoping, and then in my next playwriting adventures, to really write from my story and write as a feminine person who will never pass as a woman and who doesn't really want to pass as a woman. You know, where it's sort of like, um, there's, I'm, uh, like, I've kind of, I've thought about this a lot in 
recent times in that like I look in the mirror in the morning when I get ready to go and I decide whether or not I'm gonna like wear something more feminine or like wear something that's a little more revealing then I think okay if I ever transition to being a woman how will my life look like at that point um what what will I have to reconcile from my past is like being around a bunch of gay men um, who are so centered around masculinity and um, and not that all gay men are, but the gay men that I grew up with were. Um, and I think I'm making sense. But You um, are. You are. Great. I think in my work, I want to kind of emulate... W- uh, a thing in between like you're not sure either way so there's almost this like act of audiences removing themselves from their comfort zone and engaging with the story in a way that it's like oh we're, we're it's not challenging gender stereotypes it's challenging gender itself and it's challenging how what and it challenges what women look like what men look like what men and what women are and thinking about it in a much more broad spectrum. Absolutely. I think that's extremely exciting. It's, it's, I, I mean, I'm, I'm still figuring it out. Clearly I'm still, I'm kind of like tripping over my words and all, but I'm, and I'm still figuring it out and it's going to, and it's going to take a while, but I'm the play I'm working on right now. I'm really excited about, and I think we'll see what happens. It'll, I'm, well, I'm guess I'm committing to it now. I got, it's going up in, uh, Parley Productions in July. So people, the people will, people on earth will see the show. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. But I think that's really, I've, I've had a day of recording today. You know, the third podcast I've recorded today. And it's very interesting Ooh. talking with folks about how, and, and going through auditions and how just, and now I'm now I'm I'm a bit tongue tied myself right now about how traditional theater is so it's just so gendered and it's so specific about who the person is going to be and you're making so many decisions about casting on physicality and traditional gender roles and how how do you surmount that how do you change that and I think it's playwrights like you who are challenging what has come before and I'm excited that you're doing that and I thank you please continue doing so thank you well <laughs> and I also like I and I owe it to writers who came before me and who are my peers right now like you interviewed like Sarah Porkalob who is fucking amazing and <laughs> like I love the work that she does and Courtney Meeker is also someone who I've become very good friends with and I adore her writing and I think she's brilliant um writers that really inspire me who've constantly challenged not only stereotypes about gender, sexuality, um, um, racial constructs, ethnicity, um, like, um, Sri Moraga is a constant inspiration to me. Maria Irene Fornes. Um, I, um, uh, um, Adrienne Kennedy, mm. Susan Laurie Parks. Um, I'm trying to think of, who else? I mean, like, it's there's a, a lot of really amazing femme writers out there that I don't think that are constantly challenging things. Feminine people are, are always the people who are challenging everything. I mean, of course, there are masculine folks who are doing it, but it's the feminine folks who start it. Every Why time. do you think that is? Because they're so marginalized. I think 
Yes, I, 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 I think it's. I can't quite put my, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's always the it's always the feminine folks who are on the front runners of all movements, um, starting nonprofits, starting collectives. On the like, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement, it was started by three queer Black women. Um, um, this bridge called My Back is all uh, the, a collection that was all written by radical women of color. Um, Judith Butler as at the front runner of oh gender God. theory, and I could spend my whole life talking about Judith Butler and her work. She's absolutely fascinating. If you haven't heard of her, please check her out. She's she's uh, quite amazing at talking about gender performativity. Um, but it's all it's it's always. And and regardless of like, I can't speak for anybody else except for myself. But I I have always constantly been inspired by feminine folks and um, women writers specifically in a way that um, most male writers. I'm talking about femininity on a large spectrum. Like there are a lot of men, feminine men, who are very inspiring to me. I mean, I have both of them on my arm. Who's, that, who's on your arm? Um, <laughs> people will argue with me if they're a femme or not, but David Wojnarowicz is a little portrait right here, <laughs> and then Robert Maplethorpe is on the other side. And I'm getting Freddie Mercury up here, <laughs> um, and a couple other folks. But, yeah. Yeah. When, when did you first come to playwriting? I came to playwriting it's a very very I would consider very late um I started theater in my sophomore year of high school when I was cast in a musical I started out with musical theater um and then I went into Cornish when I was a freshman as a musical theater major I left that really quickly and then I switched to acting and then I was in, a, I wanted to try generative ensemble work, and I was in um, a play that Mallory Avedon, who is also an amazing writer, hi Mallory, mm-hmm. um, um, Mallory Avedon directed that was based on the themes of family and religion, and about one week into the rehearsal process, one of my best friends from high school, Sarah, was uh, killed by somebody, was, um, was murdered. And so what we did is that I wrote, uh, we, uh, Mallory encouraged us to bring in any pieces or responses that we'd had in general. So I brought in a prayer for her and I read it in front of the ensemble and it, um, I, I, and it was really moving to them. And then, um, we, we all took a break after that. And then she said, have you ever written a play before? And I said, no. And she said, you should write plays. And then I switched my major the next year to original works. So I had been, and that I'd been writing ever since then. That was sort of like the definitive moment. What experience have you had with taking work from the page to the stage production? Um, like, I think, like, like in like. Um, like working with actors, working with directors, like. Or how many? How many of your works have been produced up to this point? Um, up to this point, I did. I saw me and um, my friend uh, Leah Fishbow are co-conspirators of <laughs> Riot Productions. We self-produced a show right when we outside, right out of graduation. Um, that was Rosemary, and then I got. Um, 
uh, my show at Gay City, Safe. Um, I've had a couple other workshop readings with Parley. Eat Cake was a reading at Parley. Um, Parley is a playwrights group I'm a member of. Parley Productions, it's a great thing. Read, but, uh, also run by an amazing woman, Rebecca Torino Collinsworth. She's brilliant. Um, I'm, I apologize. I'm just a name dropper. I really like. I, love sh- it. I really like shout outs to my friends. And um, uh, then this year I'm doing one with. I'm doing the one with Annex. And then I have another Parley reading in the middle of the year. And then I have another show by a theater company that's going to be announced next week. So if I get to so four, this uh, after this year it'll be four. What's what's that process like for you? How do you experience it? Is it, I don't know, is it like having your heart outside of your body a little bit? It's weird in that, like, I always think I'm going to be able to hold it together. <laughs> I'm like, I'm so good. Like, this is going to be great. Like, I've done it, uh, like, Eat Cake is going to be, like, Eat Cake is like my first, like, like, it's at Annex Theater, and that's, like, a big deal for for a lot of people, and right. I'm just kind of like, so I'm, uh, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm probably going to, probably, probably going to, probably going to, probably going to throw up. <laughs> Sorry to laugh at that, but. No, it's, it's like. It's a creative thing, right? Like, I made a thing, and now other people are going to see it. I, like, ah. I, it's, it's, it's very, it's very weird. I was. I was, I was fine when Rosemary went up. I think it's because I was, like, a self-produced... Um, me and Leah basically produced it um, ourselves. So, like, we... Not basically, we did. Um, we, we self-produced it, and we were just, like, two impoverished, like, fresh-out-of-college people who just really wanted to do this play. And we, like, got everything together, and we organized all of our people, and then we did it at Inscape Arts, um as like a two week run and it was, it worked out really, really well. I mean like not, a, not a ton of people showed up, but like it was a good show and I was proud of the work that we did. But, um, and I think I wasn't as nervous during that point because I was just like so exhausted and Leah was just like, she was also the lead in that show and the co-producer. So I felt terrible being exhausted when she was like, I have like an hour of lines. <laughs> and, um, like she, there was never a moment where she wasn't on stage. I think one scene, but um, and then safe start, happened, and I was I was nervous for that, but then I got drunk and I was better. <laughs> and then eat cake. Um, the reading for eat cake, I was just like, I just I just straight up asked someone who will remain nameless. I was just like, hey, do you have Xanax or like <laughs> like Klonopin or something? Because I'm going to have a meltdown if I don't get something in my system. <laughs> and, and they, like, and they just, like, handed me, like, a little Daiso bottle of water. And, 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 and they turned to me and they go, happy opening. It's not water. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm just, like, nursing this little bottle of just really nice tequila in the back. And I'm kind of like... <laughs> so what has been the process so far with Annex? I know you're cast, but you're not announcing it. Hopefully by the time this episode goes up I can announce the cast in the intro but 
what has it been like, Catherine Blake Smith? How did that pairing of playwright and director come to be? I um, I I've, I'd seen Catherine's work before and I liked it, and I was just kind of and I've this was the third year that I'd pitched to Annex, um, and I I sent the script to her and I was like, hey, I think you could be a good fit for this, and then she was like, I don't know, uh, maybe, and then she thought about it and she was like, yeah, I'll do it. And she was she was more enthusiastic than that. She was like, yeah, sure. And um, so then we got together, and we pitched it, and we got it. And um, working with Catherine's been amazing. She's wonderful, and I really enjoy her work. And she's also a great writer, and I, um, I really appreciate her her perspective on the show. Were you in the room for auditions? I was in the room for auditions. What was that like? It was, um, that had been, I mean, including the workshops, that had been like, I don't know, like the fifth or sixth time I'd seen people read my work. Um, so I, what, uh, the Eat Cake is a little bit of a departure for, for me. It's a lot more experimental than my other works before. And like, I'm now going in a direction that's a little more surreal than I have been before. Um, so it was interesting seeing the people show up. I think, unfortunately, I made a little bit of a faux pas mistake in trying to, cast folks i was too i was trying to recreate the cast of the uh reading and i was too specific i think so not a lot of people showed up so i'll have to remember that for next time i can't only have certain people come in i've got to open it up for everybody so that was my bad and um but it was really i mean um because the show was very spectacly so people had like people sang and people read from the script and there was I think it was just like a lot so I felt high maintenance where I was just kind of like oh my god did I really like am I that person (laughs) I'm like I'm I'm like I'm the patty I'm like I'm having like a patty lapone of playwriting moment where I'm just kind (laughs) of like here just like do it and people are like this is really hard and I'm like do it I don't care do it. It wasn't like that, but what? Tell me more about the plot. Tell us more about the plot of the play, and um, without giving anything away. But what? What are people going to expect when they come in? What sort of the setup for it? Eat cake in one sentence mm-hmm. is about is is um, an exploration of how to find home when your home is not there. How to find home when you have no home. Um, home in other people, home in yourself, home in your family. Um, and it's um, centered around um, a mother and her uh, genderqueer uh, uh, child and their partner getting married. And then sort of the other satellite couples around them at the wedding. And how, and they kind of move through this um, using the wedding as kind of like a, a construct or sort of like a through line. They sure. go through all the parts of the wedding out of order and just kind of figure out how to talk to each other again, how to like love each other again, how to deal with all the shit that's happening and break up and get back together and get married and talk to abusive lovers and like not, and also actually, actually like not, have the whole focus be on the wedding and be like, okay, this wedding is important, but like what's actually going on in the world that we're really upset about that we should spend more time about. Does that right. make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it goes up. 
April, April 26th. 26th. Yeah. Uh, Annex Theater's off-night show. Folks can get more information at annextheater.org. And you're going to want to see it. So get more information on it, okay? You're going to want to see it. It's going to be great. There's... I just want everybody to know I'm not going to give everything... <laughs> uh, not going to give everything away. But two characters do sing Say You'll Be There by the Spice Girls. Ah! That's, that's amazing. I mean, like... I put I put like I put that in the tagline and everyone's been like they sing the Spice Girls. They sing the Spice Girls and that's 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 the selling point. It's like people sing the Spice Girls, please come. It's a karaoke version, so it's okay within the rights. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes. What's your process as a playwright? Do you set specific working hours? Is it only when inspiration strikes? What does what does that look like for you? I've um uh I've well, this last year, I kind of didn't really have an organized way to do it. I kind of was like, like with Eat Cake, I, I'd just broken up with my boyfriend, and I moved out, and I lost all of those friends, and then I was, right. and then I was like couch surfing for like $600. I was on a couch for like $600, and I was just like, this fucking city. And right. then, um, so that was very much of like a, I'm just going to pour my heart out on the page and see what happens. And now that I've, now that I'm like, I'm doing a lot more with writing now, I'm kind of in this, like last year was a lot of growth and a lot of like personal growth and a lot of like just base knowledge of what I'm trying to figure out um, with myself and with, in relation to the world. So this year has been a lot about organizing my thoughts and a lot about, okay, I'm going to sit down here and I'm going to write for like an hour a day or like today I, um, like today my brain was just too full. So I didn't write at all. Yesterday I wrote for like three hours. Um, I also like in in between full-time jobs right now. So it's a lot easier for me to do that. Um, because you know, when you sleep, when, when you live with your mother and you sleep on uh, her couch, it's just a little bit easier. Um, I wish I was in a different situation, but you know, it just worked out that way. Right. Um, so I, I tend to work a little bit more slow, but now I'm kind of trying to mature into like an organized way of writing. Where are you going next with your writing? What's the next challenge to tackle? Uh, Where do you want to go? Where do I want to go? Um, I really, um, I mean, I really want to finish, um, I have to finish my play for that theater that I can't talk about yet to, uh, <laughs> next week. Um, just like straight up goals. And then I finish the short play for Playwrights versus Poets, finish the, the play about the trans femme with all the bears, which, and that, the title of that one is, um, The Woods or I Wish I Loved You, Grizzly Bear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, um, after, you know, after I think the direction I want to go in now is more focused. Like I'm trying to focus a lot more. I tend to get lost in, I tend to get lost in like extravagance and like throwing words on a tape on the page, even though it doesn't really mean anything. And then like, Oh, I'm feeling so much and everything is so hard instead of just like telling a story. Um, which once I kind of like now that I'm like now that I've framed things up in that way I'm trying to like actively frame stories and like tell a thing and I'm like okay like I can like there's room to work around that but um I um I learned a lot at Lambda Literary last year and kind of like 
finding concrete stories and like a con quote concrete story like there's many kinds of concrete stories it doesn't have to be a linear and concrete are not the same thing so like like a, the, a play i'm working on now that's loosely based on my experience at um cornish called the untitled play about art school <laughs> is is sort of like this show that's the two parallel storylines that sort of meet in the middle and then all like get mishmash and then eat cake is much more of a kind of series of vignettes that all build together. And then Safe was just a straight-up, like, well-made realism, um, natural realism, naturalism, with some, like, out-to-the-audience um, liturgical... Um, uh, not a Greek chorus, but sort of like, um, like a group-conscious sure. kind of thing. Um, I, I frequently write with an audience with an with an awareness of the audience specifically like there's a lot of out to the audience moments there's a lot of like a the, the fourth the fourth wall just does not exist in eat cake it's just not there um and then with the other ones there's an intentional break of it and then um i'm sorry now i'm just going off into like my own world about my don't adventure. apologize I, let's take it back to the your experience with lambda literary what was yeah. that like and it sounds wonderful, and I want to go to there. <laughs> you should go to there. Um, they just, uh, I like, they just have the cough for their submission dates. But next year, you should seriously apply. Lambda Literary is a, um, um, I'm, apparently, I'm shocked by this, but it's the only queer only, like, or, I don't know about queer only, but like the only week-long fellowship for queer writers in the country. Which I was shocked by. But um, what they do is that you basically submit a piece in either poetry, nonfiction, um, fiction, two genres of fiction. And then this year they finally, uh, sorry, la uh, last year they added playwriting. So I was the first year, um, along with 12 other people, to go to playwriting. Um, and you go to this place in L.A. during the summer for a week and you work with a playwright. Um, the playwright who was my instructor was uh, Sheree Moraga, and she, it was, uh, it was just like, it was wonderful to, to work with her. She's amazing. And, um, and like, like legendary. <laughs> and, and, um, I was just kind of like, oh my God. Like, oh, and, her, <laughs> and her teacher is also like, her teacher was Maria Arena Fortnez, who is, right, right? Right. Again, this I do this a lot as an actor on an audio medium. I am just, like, shaking my head, like, oh, my gosh. And that's what was prompting the right, right, right. Right. So I, like, I was, <laughs> uh, so just, like, having that degree of separation between uh, Maria and uh, me was just, like, so cool. <laughs> also, like, it, Cherie and her, uh, Cherie was just amazing in general. So, anyways, what... What you do is that you work with this person for, like, in the morning for three hours, and then you go off and you write, and then you come back and have dinner and go to, like, another meeting. Um, like, there was one meeting that I went to about writing slash not writing trans characters by uh, Rika Aoki. Oh, I want to take that. Okay. It was really good. And she she had some, and she, um, she was a trans woman writer, um... And she, it was just really interesting to see her, to hear her perspective. I mm. think that was the workshop that I came with the most where she talked about only write if you are cisgender, 
and she gave a lot more permission than than I would have or um, other people would have. But um, or in in my opinion, but she was like only write trans characters if they are absolutely necessary to the story. Be- and she said something that I uh, and she goes because the problem with stories like Rent is that in the, within the first five minutes of watching Rent, I knew I was there to die because she was talking about Angel, right? And I'm like, oh. Shit, I never thought about that. And then I'm like, right, Angel's in the story to die. Um, and that's an unfortunate trope of the tragic transgender person or the tragic gay right. who can never end up happy in the end. And they always die. Um, now but now I, th- I think, I hope things are getting better for that. But um, you still have movies like the new Zoolander movie where they are, there is a quote non-binary character in the show played by Benedict Cumberbatch who is just talking about their genitals for the whole thing. Oh, I mean, it's take it's Benedict Cumberbatch. You should know better. Right? Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> no, he should know better. You should know. He should know better. I think the odds of Benedict Cumberbatch listening to this are very, are very small, but Benedict Cumberbatch, if you are listening to this, shame you on you. You should have known better. <laughs> Things got really intense for a sec. Right. Um, but, <sighs> but, um, Lambda, I was there for a week and Lambda with 12 other writers from around the country and Lambda was a very incredible experience for me. And that I knew, I think that was the moment where I was like, I want to be like a real, real writer. Like I am a real writer, but like, I want to like do this forever. It's, I think it's challenging. What was, I love, uh, Ijeoma, uh, Mm -hmm. got my tongue tripped a little bit. Uh, she came to teach a uh, a workshop at the Hedgebrook Winter Salon, and one of the writers who was in her uh, workshop wrote this beautiful blog piece, and she said, she quoted her by saying, you just, if you're a writer, you know, you write, and then you're a writer. Like, that's all you need to do to call yourself a writer. Right. And yet, I think it's so hard for people to say that about them, to name them, name themselves as a writer. I'm a writer, but I haven't published anything yet. Or I'm a playwright, but you know, that, no one's really seen what I've written. Right. It's that imposter syndrome, right. which kind of, which kind of actually like goes back to what I'm, what I'm thinking about now. And that I regret saying in the beginning of this interview was that like saying, I, I, I'm the only trans femme playwright that I, I know of because that's true. But I, but there are like in Seattle, but there, I know that there are, people out there I know that there are people out there I'm not the only person and there are people who are having that imposter syndrome and being like oh I want to write a play or I haven't yet or I am a writer but I haven't written anything down yet or I'm like I just haven't written a play yet like I just haven't written a play yet therefore of course that they're out there um but what Ijeoma was saying was very true what advice do you have for folks who want to try their hand at playwriting or they have they think they might have an idea of a play but they're they haven't taken a class yet and they just want to dive in like where where would you recommend that they start just like um read a read plays that's like my first is read plays um and read plays like yes read david Actually, don't read David Mamet. Um, <laughs> um, read like read Tony Kushner and read um, Ibsen and Chekhov, 
but like don't just read them like read like read plays that you are like what is happening and like like i think for me the greatest gift the, the greatest lesson i learned was by reading and reading people who i weren't i wasn't taught um so like i found um Adrienne kennedy and um Susan Laurie, no, we were taught Susan Laurie Parks, but I found Adrienne Kennedy, I found Maria Arena Fornes' other work, and I have to thank Amy Thone, who was my acting teacher at Cornish, for introducing us to that, because I would never have found her otherwise. Um, reading other Brecht plays, and Brecht is problematic in his own way, but like some of his work is really good. Um, and reading plays by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, um, who just, um, his play is available. It's called An Octoroon, and it's amazing. Um, Shri Moraga is an, another amazing writer. Just, like, go out and read plays by people that you wouldn't be taught plays by. Um, like, and it's unfortunate that there is this kind of class... There was an um, article in American Theater that came out recently that was sort of in response to um, Tonya Pinkins leaving... Um, Mother Courage, um, right? And it was specific. You want to set that up for our listeners who might not be familiar with the scenario. Yes. So the scenario is that um, there was a production of Mother Courage set up by Classic Stage Company, as I think it was what mm-hmm. it was called, and they cast Tonya Pinkins in it, who is this Tony Award winning um, black actress. For um, she won a Tony for her role in Caroline or Change right. uh, ten years ago. And what they did with the production is that they set it in the Democratic Republic of Congo and had Mother Courage uh, basically as a, um, a refugee. I want to well, she is a refugee. They, they kind of just, what they did is that they just kind of stuck the play in the Congo and then didn't do anything with it. And Tonya kept trying to humanize her character after the director had said, well, she's just a delusional woman. And she's just delusional, and they kept going over and over again. And the director, and she butted heads a lot, and the director wouldn't listen to her. And um, the the cast was fighting with her, and she tried to stick to what Brecht wanted to write, basically. And um, what ended up happening is that she left the production saying that it was sort of the, it was the definition of cultural appropriation, and that you're just going to stick a play in the middle of the Congo but not do any research on it. And use Africa as basically use the Democratic Republic of Congo as an exploitive way to get people to come to your show. And she said, she, uh, she um, suggested the hashtag black perspectives matter. And that if you're going, if you're going to be, if you're a white person in the room with actors of color and black actors, that you're going to need to have that perspective matter. And if you're like, and if you're writing and if you're um, producing plays, where people of color are actors in the show, then you need to listen to them and you need to center their opinions on what it's going to be. So there is this article in response to that where someone said, if you want, if like, can white people write black perspectives, basically was the general thing. And it was, if you want a black perspective, produce a black playwright. So for me, I, as a white playwright, will never be able to write from a black person's perspective ever, 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 ever. And there can be folks of color in the room, um, and, and again, I might be going into treacherous territory speaking about this, but there, I think it's important that if there are folks of color in the room and you are making theater with them 
and you are the white writer, that you got to listen to them. And if something is problematic, then you change it. That's just it. That's sorry. Uh, I'm do just... you, no, don't apologize. I think that's a fantastic perspective. Do you have hope sort of on the other side of that, or not the other side of that, but when you write your characters, do you hope that directors take a color conscious approaches approach to casting your plays? I think, yes. I think because there is the, with classic stage company, there is, and I'm going to, sorry, backtrack for sure, just a absolutely. second. Um, and that classic, and that the article was talking about if we're going to produce, like classic stage company has only produced one original play by a person of color. There have been all translations. There have been multiple translations, but uh, and even that, there's only been like seven translations and adaptations, and there's been uh, a handful of directors of color. Um, but the thing is, is that if we have to consider in the American theatrical canon that it's not just Chekhov and Ibsen and Shakespeare and that, if, or even in the 20th century of like Miller and... Not just dead white men. Not just dead white men. Right, exactly. And it doesn't count if they're gay. There's still a lot of dead gay white men who get produced a lot. And it's an unpopular opinion, but there's a lot of plays produced by gay cisgender white men. Um, sorry, Larry Kramer. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we have to consider classics like um, by Adrienne Kennedy, classics by Susan Laurie Parks, classics by um, like um, Lorraine Hansberry and Brandon Jacobs Jenkins and... Um, Lynn Nottage and all of these playwrights that constantly are getting underproduced and yet they are classic, brilliant, amazing writers. So I think going back to the question now in um, working with a color conscious approach I think it is important primarily to to not just be a white person with a production team full of white people casting actors of color in your work. That's not enough. Right. And to specifically restructure this, restructure your systems in theater to, ha- to decenter whiteness and to, and to actively recruit, actively listen to, actively center the opinions, the needs, and the artistic choices of people of color in your future theatric in the future theatrical work thank you so much for sitting down to talk thank you so much katie